Well, good morning. On this Time Change Sunday, I'm so glad to see you here. How many of you are really awake? Doug? How you doing? Well, okay, that did it. All right. Forty years ago, I heard this statement, and when I heard it, it absolutely rocked my world. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. Because your view of God will ultimately determine everything. What you invest your life in, what your priorities will be, your passions, your pursuits, and what you will then invest in the lives of others. All that your life ultimately becomes is based on what we truly to be true about our God. The kind of life we live, the character we develop, the choices we make, and the legacy we leave behind can ultimately and finally be traced back to our view of God. This is not just mentally. This is not something we just recite when we're doing the confessional statement. This is something we owned to be true of him in the core of our being, in the depth of our soul that has gripped us, that is convincing us of who he is. This is when a right view of God doesn't inform you. It transforms you. Choice by choice, commitment by commitment, and ultimately, it overhauls our character to be Christ-like. So how do we know? I mean, how do we know what our actual view of God is? It will be most accurately revealed in your suffering and how you choose to go through it will be your best reflector of your true belief and who God is. When there is some sudden loss that absolutely blindsided you, you did not know, did not see it coming, some long-term pain or sacrifice that you're asked to make and you see no light at the end of this tunnel, or deep relational hurt. I don't know anything more soul-crushing that with people that we love, people that we've invested into, and there's a relational breakdown, there's misunderstanding, there's betrayal. Healing, but at the same time, again, it's also deeply revealing because when that happens, all the actual buried beliefs we have inside our life, inside our heart, bubble to the surface, including what we own to be true about God, and God wants us to see it. That's why he brings these things into our lives. If you have not read this book by David, Paul David Tripp, I recommend it to you. It's, the, it's on suffering. He makes this excellent statement. Our personal view of God will directly determine how we choose to suffer because our lives are shaped not just by what we suffer like on the outside, 
but what we bring to our suffering on the inside. What we think about ourselves, our life, and our God will profoundly affect the way we suffer and respond to difficulty when it comes our way. Joseph, many of you know his, most of you know his story, was the 11th son. He was his favorite son, which unfortunately his daddy made known to everybody. And so the 10 older brothers hated him, were jealous of him. And so at one fortuitous moment, they took him, threw him into a pit, and callously attempted or planned to murder him. But instead, they sold him into slavery to Egypt. So at one moment, this 17-year-old boy goes from a safe, freedom, security life and and the, and the next moment, the next day, he's a slave in some foreign land, deep in a completely different culture, with this fresh, deep wound of rejection, along with such incredible fear of going into an environment completely foreign to him. But the scripture through his story has this one little statement that keeps repeating itself, but the Lord was with him. But the Lord was with him. He wasn't alone. No true child of God is ever alone. God was with him and began to prosper him in the house of a man named Potiphar. Joseph proved to be such a faithful and competent servant that over time, men entrusted his entire household to him. But just well life becomes a little bit easier for him, a little bit more settled, enter Mrs. Potiphar, who began to repeatedly attempted to sexually seduce Joseph. Time and again, day by day, he resists until she finally accuses him of doing the very thing to her she was trying to do to him. And wrongly, he gets thrown into prison for doing what was right. And the question is, where was God in all that unfairness? The scripture does not leave us to wonder. It says God was with him in all he did. In every unfairness, in every false accusation, God was with him, with him. In all the pain with him, including all the betrayal, the intense loneliness, the horrific hurt, because it's not going to end there. Once in prison, his fellow prisoners, the cupbearer and the baker, promised to put in a good word concerning Joseph, at least the cupbearer did, about him being innocent, but they forgot all about him. So I'm just going to summary. This young man, starting at the age of 17, for the next 13 years of his life, may we say the prime time years of his life, 
experience relentless unjust suffering with no relief in sight. Little did he know at that time that God was at work in him and in his character to prepare him for the throne. Likewise, little do we know of the great things God has preparing for our future through the suffering and the injustices he is asking of us to patiently endure in our present. Because God is equally at with us in whatever it is we're suffering and going through, as he was with Joseph in his. So the time came when God gave Pharaoh two separate dreams that tormented him and no one could interpret them. This is when the cupbearer finally remembers his jailhouse friend and Joseph is brought in by Pharaoh into his presence. And with this spirit-empowered provision, Joseph is able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams concerning the famine that's going to soon engulf Egypt, but exactly how to prepare for it prompting Pharaoh to say, what better man than you to oversee this? And so you know the story. In a moment's time, Joseph goes from the rags to riches, from being in the throes of death to the throne of of Egypt. So what we want to do today is forward to the end of his life story, Genesis chapter 50. If you will go there in your Bibles or your electronic device. Genesis chapter 50. Let's catch us up to speed here. It's in verse 33 of chapter 49. Jacob is finishing his charge to his 12 sons, draws up his feet in bed and breathes his last, and was gathered to his people. I'll tell you what. When I want to die, when I die, I want that moment. <laughs> you know what? You have your kids and grandkids all before you. You say a blessing to them, and then, okay, I can go home. That was pretty neat. And then for chapter 50, verses 1 through 14, is the embalming and mourning and the ultimate burial of Jacob, not in Egypt, but in Canaan. This whole process took 70 days. Now the plot begins to thicken. With Daddy Jacob having gone the way of all flesh, the brothers begin to fear that Joseph may take out some of his pent-up vengeance on them. So follow with me as we read again verses 15 through 17. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph should bear a grudge against us and pay us back in full for all the wrong which which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before it dying, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of of your father. And Joseph went and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Joseph is grieved over the fact that his brothers who have a history of lying to him are doing it again. Another scheme about what daddy supposedly said before he died. Daddy said, you better forgive us. If Joseph has said anything, uh, Jacob has said anything like that, he most certainly would have said it directly to Joseph. 
Verse 18, the brothers collectively offer themselves as, as we would to Joseph, likely thinking, Joseph may do to us what we would do, surely do if we were him to him. But before these moments, God had already, he had already chosen forgiveness over vengeance. And the reason for this is because of his view of God long before established. Because note what he tells his brothers in verse 19. He says, but Joseph said, do, do not be afraid for am I in, the, am I in, the, in God's place? Again, there are going to be times when we're going to be mistreated. There are going to be times when people take advantage of us, betray us, slander us. There are going to be times when they do us in, work against us. We may have friends that do that. We may have loved ones that do that. We may come out of nowhere. And the desire to get even will be intense. Because in our damnic nature, that's the way we think. Do unto others as they do to you. We tend to imply more than when they do evil to us. So the, the feeling and the desire to get even will be overwhelming. Right then is the question. Do I have the right to be in God's place and do his job? Do I have the right to take my own vengeance? To carry out my own justice? Joseph, folks, never owned that right. He let God do his job in his time and in his perfect way. And in so doing, he moved from being a victim of his circumstance to living as a victor because of his faith in Christ and God. So how do we become better? How do we become peaceful instead of fearful? Or contented in our spirit instead of cynical? Back joy-filled instead of jaded. It all gets back to how we view God every single time. Specifically, where we own, personalize his sovereignty over our lives, his protection over our lives, to where it owns us in our choices, that he is absolutely in control of what goes on in this world, that there is not one maverick molecule in this universe, that he is perfectly wise and good, and he has a, he has a target for your goodness and all that he allows to happen into your life. And this is the freeing truth of this man's life. In your very bad, God is up to his very best. In the pain, he's doing a purifying. In the waiting, he's doing a working. In the hurt, he is doing a deeper healing if you, as if you never had to go through that hurt. That hurt becomes your help. But it requires a submissive heart to the process to allow God to do his work. 
It allows us to submit our will for him to do his will in the midst. It's not just automatic. Because if we don't do these things, we're going to grow bitter. One of the Joseph's life story spotlights one of the major doctrines we need to own about our God is that he's absolutely sovereign. He makes no mistakes. God never said oops. There are no swings and misses with him. He's absolutely sovereign. Uh, I've adapted some of this from Steve Farrar and his great sermon on Joseph. First of all, God's in control over devastating losses, and they're going to happen. They haven't happened to you yet. They will. He's in control over every one. In a blink of time, God intentionally allowed Joseph to experience his intensifying losses. His freedom, his family, and his entire cultural familiarity from being loved and valued to now being a captive slave in some far-out place. God could have prevented all of this, but he had a far greater purpose to turn those severe losses into great gains. Yes, in Joseph's life, great gains. But to turn that loss for him personally into a gain for the entire nation of Israel that he would have no clue of. Secondly, he is in total control of all of life circumstances, including the valley of a shadow of death experiences that God will have us go through. When Joseph was placed trembling on that slave block, why was it that a strategically important man like Potiphar was the very one that bought him? Because God placed him there. God put it in his heart to do it. Joseph became his slave. So, you don't like your boss? Yeah, he's an idiot. Well, we hold those truths to be self-evident. You find yourself griping and grousing about some other person in your life or over your life? Well, who put them there? Chance? Why do you think they are there? Child of God, whether they be a Christian or a non-Christian, they are there on assignment by God for your life to ultimately make your life meaningful, not miserable. They're ultimately not there to frustrate you, but ultimately to fulfill you. Because God will work in your life in the midst of that person or situation to deepen you. And this is how he does it. He uses these kind of circumstances to bring out the toxic attitudes that are buried deep in us so he can purify them out of us. Attitudes like misplaced priorities. Wrong thinking he's trying to transform. The bitternesses that are in your heart 
He wants you to forgive from past things. The attitudes of complaining, negativity, he wants to transform into gratitude. They are like God's spiritual x-ray machines to see what's truly inside of us. He wants to reveal us to us so that we would see the real us. These people are in your life for that purpose. For years I missed this, you know, wanting to serve God, but I'm fighting him and not knowing it. Getting angry, critical, prideful, self-righteous, because I did not even think to view difficult authorities, parents, step-parents, supervisors, through the lens of God's providence. That he intentionally placed these people in my life. It was not fate. It was not chance. It was not for me to, it's not just for me to work under them, but was for me to grow under them, to let God work in me, to reveal me to me. It just takes the fire of unfairness to bring out our own ugliness. Have you noticed that? It just takes that kind of fire. The bad attitudes, the wrong attitudes, the idolatrous priorities, we don't see them otherwise. God is in, number three, God is in control over all of our assignments. Human viewpoint says this, Joseph got the total shaft, because, all because of his no-count brothers, which so callously sold him down the river. Humanly, those circumstances are absolutely true. But if Joseph had only chose to view them through the human lens, the victim lens, what would have become of him? He would have only grown angrier and more embittered with every passing day to the harm of who? Him. How are you doing today with your own past life circumstances? With what you have had to go through? Where you rehash if only thoughts. If only this had not happened. If only this could have been different. How is that helping you? How is that hurting you? May I tell you, over time, the more we have those thoughts in our mind and we don't address them, we will be grow to become jaded and joyless. Angry and bitter, caustic and critical. Particularly in times of suffering, human viewpoint will always lead you down a path that is self-focused, self-absorbed, and self-destructive. But divine viewpoint, God's sovereignty at work in our lives for our ultimate good 
is the only path that leads us down to freedom. It's the only path that leads us down to joy and inner peace. As a slave in a foreign culture, I love this. It still says, Genesis 39, 2, that God was with him and prospered him. And if you look at that, at that passage, you're going, wait, what? He's a slave. He doesn't own anything. He doesn't even own his life. He's in a miserable, limited circumstance. What do you mean God prospered him? Slaves don't prosper. Especially a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian household where they were loathed. But Joseph did because God was with him. He prospered him right where he was at. It is highly significant, and I'm going to be careful to say I'm not in support of this slavery, but it is highly significant that within the churches of the first century, in the congregations of those churches were populated, two-thirds were slaves who owned nothing, who had nothing, humanly speaking, who had a totally limited and loser life. Yet in the New Testament, it is clear that all of the promises for an abundant life was theirs, regardless of their circumstance or circumstance, without any mention of them needing to change their circumstances at all to experience the promises of God in their life. Because God's blessings are primarily internal, not external. His attitudes of the Spirit that truly free us, they're internal. No one can steal that from you. It's all up to your choice. Which tells us it's not the circumstances that we're in that make us. It's our attitude and response to them. And again, please understand I'm not advocating slavery. I just want to make the, the point the the point the scripture makes is this fundamental truth. God can bloom you right where he's planted you, and he waits to do it. It all gets down to our thought life, our attitude, including what we're processing about God in the moments of our deepest hurt. What we're owning to be true about him in those moments. Through the God lens, there are no small insignificant assignments. They're just small attitudes related to those assignments. Number four, God is in control of all grievous setbacks. I mean, Joseph has given charge over Potiphar's entire household. And evidently, Jacob is one handsome Hebrew stud. He was probably in the cross training back then. I don't know. But unfortunately, Mrs. Potiphar takes improper notice of him. And day after day, she makes her advances. And day after day, time after time, he resists her advances. And I want to, again, point out, the scripture points out very clearly why he did. He said, how can I sin against my master as well against my God by doing such a thing? He had a God focus in temptation. But he's subsequently thrown into prison. She lies about him. She frames him. She falsely accuses him of doing what she did. So he has two major setbacks. One being circumstantial. He goes from a place of somewhat privilege in this house, of being the head of it, to now being in prison. 
But the other thing had to be his expectation. What? God, I passed the test. <laughs> I mean, I love what Matt said. If this is what I get for doing wrong, right, what do I get for doing wrong? From every human viewpoint, Joseph again got the shaft. How utterly unfair. She totally lied. She got away with it. Like some people who have slandered us. But once again, God allowed it for a far greater purpose than Joseph could ever have understood at the moment. He's now in prison and he's abandoned. It's interesting to me that what God did not do with Joseph, he could have assured him, I'm going to enable you to accurately interpret a couple of dreams down the road, just hanging here for a couple of years, then I'm going to make you prime minister over all of Egypt. You're going to be reunited with your dad and family. They're going to move over. We're going to move to Egypt, and you're going to prosper. I'm going to let you know in your future so you can endure it. The Bible tells us, folks, we walk by faith. And what that means is we're not walking believing in a plan. We're walking following a person. Jesus is basically saying, God is basically saying to Joseph, Jesus says to us, follow me and I will unfold the plan. We're following a person, not a blueprint. Just follow me one choice, one step at a time. God is also in control of prolonged waiting. While I'm prisoner, while I'm in prison, the, the fearless cupbearers and the baker also had dreams, and he interpreted these dreams. And for what reason, we are not told uh, they, why they were imprisoned. Um, so the cupbearer interprets the, the dream and says, you're going to be restored. And the baker, he had some hard news. Say bye-bye to the coconut cream pie, you're going to be hanged. So he asked the cupbearer, remember me to Pharaoh. Tell him I'm, I'm here under false charges, and he agrees to do it. Yet nothing. He waits. And again, he's, God asks us to wait. Time's just to wait on him. In such moments, in the times of waiting, God develops proven character in us. The best work or ministry we will ever do is after the work we allow God to do first. It's in control over while we wait. God is over powerful people. So Pharaoh has a couple of dreams, and they're troubling ones. Corn, seven lean cows, eating up seven plump ones, and seven withered ears of corn, eating up seven full ones. So the next morning, he's biting his nails. He's writhing and worthy. What do these dreams mean? All the Egyptian guys couldn't interpret the dreams. You know why? Because they weren't on the list. <laughs> they weren't on the short list of guys who can interpret that dream. There's only one guy God had on that list, and that was Joseph. And so they're there, and they're standing with, with Pharaoh. They're all concerned. He is not happy, so nobody is happy. And then at that time, the cupbearer remembers Joseph and says, Boss! 
I know a guy. And they go and get Joseph, and they bring him in, and he interprets the dreams. They're going to be seven years, followed by seven years of famine. And this is what I would suggest that you do. And God at that moment prospered Joseph in Pharaoh's eyes. And immediately he was promoted from prisoner to prime minister. Which gets to the seventh one. God is sovereignly in control over all promotion and advancements. If you're being lied about at work, you've been misrepresented. Do you have people, ever had people take credit for the work you did to promote themselves? You've been overlooked for promotion, even demoted because of being undermined. These things happen. What do you do? What do you do when you, are been, you know what has happened has been unfair? I would have you write down Psalm, Psalm 2, do 1 through 7. I'll read the first part of this. Do not worry about evildoers. Do not fret about those who seem to have succeeded in carrying out their wicked schemes against you. Instead, trust in the Lord by doing good. What do you do when there's wrong done to you? Do good. God watches. Do good in the face of wrong. Stay right where you're at and cultivate a life of faithfulness. And verse 6 says, at the right time, God will make your innocence as evident as the dawn and the justice of your cause is obvious as the new day sun. When you do right in the midst of wrong, you're letting God fight your battle. And it frees you. And he will honor you. And then God is in absolute control over weather, calamity, famine, and prosperity. Amos 3.6 plainly says, Can calamity come upon a city unless the Lord cause it? Job 1.21 does not say, The Lord gives and Satan takes away. No, the Lord takes away. As prophesied, God caused seven years of plenty, and then came the seven years of famine. The scripture has numerous examples where God causes the subtraction of physical and financial provision to bring families and nations intentionally. Let me repeat that. God privationally will cause periods of famine and some physical deprivation to bring families and nations to their knees. He intentionally will bring about physical lack in order to nurture spiritual revitalization. In 1976, Billy Graham, grieving over the moral decline in this country, says if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Folks, that was 47 years ago. Imagine what he would say today. Imagine what God is saying today. Over the past 70 years, with regard to sexual perversions, our nation has gone from repudiating them 
to tolerating them, to accepting them, to embracing them, to celebrating them, and at some levels now even mandating them. Judgment is likely at our doorstep. How can it not be? Yet this is not something to fear. This is not something to turn you into a prepper, but a prayer. Pray that God would do whatever it takes to bring our nation to its knees. We're in trouble. That there be a great turning to God in repentance in our churches first, leading to a spiritual awakening in our nation. God is in absolute control over last chapters and final judgments. With Joseph, look how it all ended. He said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And what good came out of this? His, his position and honor being the second most powerful person in Egypt. Of his joyful reunion with his family and his father and being the agent of God to save them all alive. His legacy, his legacy that is extended through the years of a life of obedience that has been chronicled in scriptures never to be forgotten, including this life lesson in the very bad, in the very worst, God is up to something great to accomplish his very best. By far the greatest injustice that was ever perpetrated in history makes every other injustice pale in comparison that which was committed against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He knew no sin he was the spotless Lamb of God, but nonetheless was treated as the worst criminal, publicly mocked, humiliated, and so cruelly crucified, rejected by his own. Only to experience the ultimate abandonment that on the cross, when all of our sin was laid on his back, his father turned his face. He couldn't look upon the sin. You talk about being alone. He was absolutely abandoned so that you and I would never have to be. Jesus Christ, that day he died was the darkest day in the history. It couldn't get any worse. The women at the cross were weeping. The disciples were scattered and grieving. And Satan was doing the jig along with all his minions, thinking he had won. But in that darkest and worst moment, God was at his work, work to accomplish his very best, the salvation of every one of us. Through that death, he brought life. And we are all partakers of that. If we know Jesus Christ as our Savior this morning. So great a salvation has come ours today, and that's what we celebrate the greatest story that never gets old. That never gets old. In the life of our Savior, this lesson comes out 
far greater than it did ever would with anyone else, including Joseph. In the very the very worst, God accomplished his very best. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you're a God who is perfectly sovereign, working for our good in all manner of how you're working in our lives. I pray, God, for the, the work of your spirit, for us to see you as you are and follow you because of your goodness and your truth and your promises. I pray, Lord, that we would experience the fullness of what you have for us in this life by willing to submit to you, to follow you in our times of, of deepest pain. And we celebrate you, Lord Jesus. Look at the life you've provided for us. We again just come to you and say thank you. As we partake in the elements today, just the same of the risen one, once again, for your sacrifice for us. In the name of the risen one, we pray. Amen.